Save the date for the 12th of September. Join our webinar on digital transformation in manufacturing. We are exploring how IoT, AI and smart factories are reshaping our sector. Hear from industry leaders like Airbus, Rolls-Royce and Heriot Watt University. This is a must attend for professionals and decision makers in manufacturing. So register now at resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. That's resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. The link is also in the description. I had a fascinating conversation this week with Katie Moss of Trent Refractories. We talked about moving sideways into industry from finance, taking over the family firm, and what female leaders can bring to UK manufacturing. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. From Redfern Media, this is Remake Manufacturing. My guest this week is Katie Moss, Managing Director at Trent Refractories. The firm has been run by her family since 1989, supplying bespoke refractory products and solutions to the UK and global markets. So Katie Moss, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Now you're a rare example of a woman leading a UK manufacturing firm and winning awards for your efforts, but it wasn't easy getting to this point. So it'd be great to hear how you negotiated the obstacles and the pitfalls on your journey. But before we get into all that, could you paint a picture of your firm, Trent Refractories? Tell us what you make, the scale of the operation, where you are, all the details. Sure. So we make a product, or we make refractory products, and not many people really know what they are. Um, sort of a hidden industry, if you like, but highly essential to, uh, to our day-to-day lives. Um, so essentially, it's high-temperature ceramic products, um, and those products go into anything that sees heat. So predominantly, uh, we supply into the steel industry and foundries, incineration, uh, cement, kilns, and anything like that that sort of sees temperatures upwards of a thousand degrees. And we've got a factory based in Scunthorpe in North Lincolnshire, about thirty-five thousand square feet, and um, we employ about eighteen um, staff at the moment. So not not many staff but we, we for what we achieve from that is uh, is quite remarkable making an essential product really is the secret ingredient in so many things that we take for granted definitely and though the company is a family business you didn't step into it immediately it took you a while to to come around and, and join the company can you tell us about your first experience on the shop floor uh, and how your career plans changed over time yes so um Probably around the time I was 16, 17 years old, um, I went to college uh, to forward my education. And as part of that, my father agreed that I could work for the family business for for one or two days a week. So um, my father, being the man who was, put me straight in onto the shop floor and into the laboratory, um, (laughs) grading different aggregates, quality testing, and then also manufacturing some of the um, the products that none of the other team wanted to manufacture. So, uh, <laughs> so I got the, the the dirty jobs, if you like. Um, I was training at that point to be in more of a finance role in my career because that's how I saw uh, my future being. I was cajoled into uh, banking because my mother and father said that that would be a good career to have. So uh, started out as a management trainee for HSBC Bank and um and then went on into um school business management 
Uh, so I didn't really, apart from that sort of year whilst I was at college, I didn't really have any more to do uh, with the family business. I think um, my father felt that perhaps it wasn't the way for his daughters to uh, <laughs> to to do to do such a job. Um, and what brought you back then? Uh, not by choice. So um, I was quite happy in my career in school business management. I'd had a job created for me, which was very exciting. And uh, unfortunately, my father uh, took ill and um, was trying to secure a sale for the business. And within a few months of, of him taking uh, poorly, uh, we found out that he had a limited lifespan. So there was this push to uh, to sell the business. Now, I was the executor in my dad's will. So when the awful day passed and uh, my dad passed away, I had to sort of pick up the reins and try and understand the business to secure a sale. So coming into the business after such a long time, although some of the faces were familiar, what we actually did and knowing the numbers, they were all um, alien. So uh, that was sort of me coming back into the business. And that was in your 20s? or Late 20s, yeah, I was 29. So um, yeah, stepped in, just tried to get the metrics, you know, to be able to talk about how much export we did and, and our tonnages and, um, you know, so that someone would actually purchase the business. But it became apparent within a short space of time, probably about six months, that actually, A, the business needed guiding and also B, that to secure a sale, unless it was at a rock bottom price, it just wasn't going to, um, wasn't going to materialise. So mm. this short term, this short term issue of, um understanding it to secure a sale was going to go on a lot longer than than what we thought um right. so it was at that point that really seeing and understanding the business and understanding some of the problems within the business that i felt that we could probably uh manage it for a little bit longer and and not have to take that rock bottom price so um so that was sort of when I stepped more into the the day-to-day management of the company and started getting more involved and trying to understand what we actually made and how we made it. Mm. Uh, and from that point on, I've sort of, I got sucked in, I suppose, and um, I'm still here. Remake Manufacturing is brought to you by Redfern Media, the digital agency for B2B manufacturers. We partner with B2B manufacturers to listen, think, create, and innovate. To find out more, head over to remakemanufacturing.com and sign up to the podcast, plus manufacturing marketing and technology insights. Now, back to the show. And when you did find yourself taking the reins, what was your vision for the company? How did that come about? you kind of got sucked in, as you said, but pretty soon you had a, a very clear idea of what needed to be done. So how did you expect to make that happen? So in terms of a vision for the company, my true vision didn't sort of materialise till a couple of years later, but um, I could very much see early doors that a lot of changes, simple changes could be made to make the company run and function better than it was doing. Um just it started out in sort of basic administration terms and then has sort of filtered through the business over the years. What was really interesting was coming into the industry from 
uh, from a different background, sort of from banking and finance. I think from that side, you get to see lots of other businesses and um, see how they operate. But then, you know, to and also from a big corporate coming to a small business, a small family business is run entirely differently to to say a big corporate and how the structure of that works. But there are things that are good about those bigger businesses, the processes um, that streamline things and stop you from making the same mistakes over and over again that needed to needed to be um, brought into this business in order to um, make it successful. So, um, so there was there was that element, and then there was also the the industry as a whole. It's quite a oh, what's the word? It's it's and a very established industry, but it's not really modernised in in itself. So, um, so there was a lot of changes in terms of how uh, I wanted to do business um, because coming from at the the bank you know everything was about honesty and integrity in, in what you did and actually when I came over to it into this industry um it didn't seem to I was shocked actually as to how little of that was was embedded into not not necessarily the company but some of the other suppliers around us um people doing duplicitous Acts right. Okay. Just, um, yeah, it was, it was quite shocking, and and I thought I thought that one way to differentiate ourselves was to be more open and honest with our customers and with our suppliers, and then that would hopefully over time build trust and um, and you know it's sort of the long game really rather than a short term win, um, and I think that's what I've tried to build through um, the vision and the values of the company, uh, which has got us where we are today. I mean, that sounds like uh, it could be something that rubs people up the wrong way a little bit. So when you when you tried to sort of change the direction of the company, did you feel there was resistance or did you feel there were people who didn't want to do it your way? I think there was definitely a, well, this is the way we've always done it. So why would we change? And, oh, if you change this, then everything's going to fail. So there were, well, not threats in a sense, but uh, people trying to place seeds of doubt in my mind that... Um, it wasn't the right direction. Mm. And that was hard because being, you know, 29, th- probably 30 by this time, um, I sort of, I knew what my values were, but at the same time, it's, you're trying, you're listening to people who are older and wiser than you, and they've been in this business for longer than you. So you have to listen to them and give, and give them credence in what they're saying, because they've, been here before but sometimes it went against my um it didn't feel right as a decision so as I got more confident I learned to trust my instinct more because what would happen is say there were I don't know three people around me giving me different snippets and you can't do this um because if you do then this is going to fail or you can't do that because somebody somebody will end up undercutting you because we'll come out more expensive and and uh, and actually, each time that I listened to their advice, I'm not saying that I was right, or because that's not that's not the case, but um, I, I soon found out that they weren't right either. So, uh, and actually, I should have trusted some of my um, some of my instincts earlier in the game. And and, uh, and and I think you can dilute your management style if you have too many voices. So you need to just sort of have a core group of people who you trust and um 
and then take that information and still lead with your direction. So it sounds like there was a bit of conflict there. And, and was that also part, partly because you're a, a young woman in, in a, 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 an industry that doesn't see too many people rising in those positions? I think there was there was definitely a uh, a stigma, a stereotype, if you like, that um, in the industry that people felt that I was just a young girl. What did I know? What did I know about refractories? What did I know about running a business? Um, and you sort of generally, when somebody gives respect, you get this baseline level of respect that everybody should have as a matter of course, but I actually felt like it was below that and I had to prove um I had to prove myself in order to be heard. And uh service and cook or customer service was one of the one of the things that I did know inside and out and that I knew that I could prove and demonstrate to our customers that if I listened to them and uh, I didn't pretend to know all about what they did. Um those people actually gave me a lot of time and um, uh, an energy of theirs to, to guide me through their processes, which then in turn helped me build my knowledge um, about the industry. But I think there were definitely people who thought that, it, I, well, I think a lot of people thought I was going to fail. And, and after after six months, the business was still standing. So, so that kind of changed people's perception a bit. And then after two years, the business is still here now. So she can't be doing it all bad. And then now sort of, well, probably five, six years later, things really started to change because, well, how do you, you can't just play at it and keep something alive for five or six years. You must be, you must have got control now. And I think that was big um, shift change, not only, within the people who were around the company, but also the industry as a whole and how the industry saw me. So it sounds like it's been a bit of an uphill slog at times, but where you are now, you feel like you have got that baseline, at least of respect, if not more so, and and you're happy where you are now? I do feel like I'm respected now, yes. Less and less people underestimate me now than what they used to. So um yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting. And across those difficult years, did you ever feel like, oh, this is too much, you've got to give up and maybe go back to finance? I think there's definitely been, there's been some dark days where you, where you think, is it is it all worth it? And uh, I could be, I mean, I could have had a job where I didn't have to work school holidays. I was, I was listened to and um, respected and uh, I could have risen through, risen through the ranks um through sort of the public sector I suppose and and I I think I was well on my way to doing that and I enjoyed I enjoyed that but the um something really the thing that keeps me going is knowing that I bring something not only to well to Scunthorpe because you know Scunthorpe is a town that struggles generally um and it's important to have a business like Trent uh, in the area because it, it, it brings the standards up um, but also you know you, you're giving you, you, you're keeping the expertise of what we do and that that niche you know the niche market that, that we have we're keeping that within Britain so although I have a although occasionally I'll have a wobble 
I wouldn't have it any other way. And I don't actually know whether I'd go back to being managed either. I think I'm incapable of being managed <laughs> now. So um, my husband will, would uh, would give you some some quips of his pet names for me, but they're not for sharing on here. <laughs> So there's a lot of a lot of pride in what you've achieved and, and a lot of satisfaction in, in proving everybody wrong. And in 2016, uh, you were nominated at the First Woman Awards. Can you tell us what that experience felt like, uh, what getting that recogni- recognition meant to you? Um, yes, I, I think I was quite overwhelmed to be even nominated. Um, it was a friend um, who'd, who I'd come to know through the business who actually took the time to nominate me. And the fact that she'd taken that time out of her day to make that nomination and submitted something was um, was quite moving. It allowed allowed me to take stock of what had happened. So by that point, I'd been in the business five years, and it felt like a treadmill and a a slog um, to get to that point. And um, looking at the submission it, and having to go and talk about. Um, yourself in a in a judging scenario it was actually quite an emotional experience because uh, you you relive everything that you've done and you don't necessarily recognize what you've done yourself so it was a, it was a moment where I could actually uh, it actually boosted my confidence and and I think women sometimes talk about imposter syndrome and not necessarily feeling worthy of the job that they're in and at that point I think I still felt that and um, it was when I got that recognition that I started to feel more like a managing director and that a room of people is people who did incredible jobs themselves had allowed me that privilege of um, of getting that award it really was um, quite amazing so uh, so yeah it, that gave me a humongous uh, confidence boost. And we should clarify, you did win that award. So that as well must have uh, boosted your, your confidence and, and the amount of respect people show you uh, when, when they meet you in, in, the, in the business context. Yes, I think it, it, did, uh, it did change things somewhat. And um, yeah, it was, a really nice, it was a really nice experience. And I do think it made people, I think it was at that point where people actually sat up and thought, oh, actually, she's not going away now. It's this... Um, she's here to stay and maybe she's maybe actually she's going to change things for the future so I don't know we'll see and then along the way uh did you have much help you mentioned people who maybe resisted what you were trying to do but was there anyone who was there to to help guide you in a really positive way oh yes so um early days there was a gentleman who uh used to work uh for the business and uh back in sort of the early 90s my father helped him along his way and and I think when he passed away uh his name's Chris uh he felt that he wanted to support me as as a way of um giving back to my father I don't think he quite really knew what he was about to bite off and chew uh, because (laughs) he's still part of my life now but uh in terms of the guiding me through the dark times if you like and helping me realize that my gut wasn't incorrect you know he he would sort of guide me and mentor me along that along that journey, and he also taught me quite a lot about refractories as well, and um, uh, in a way that I could understand. You know, he took that; he was very patient with me and um, and talked things through. So I will be forever in his debt um, and to his family for 
for the mental help and support that it gave me over that time. And then how important is it for you to help mentor other people in turn? Oh, absolutely. It's if you can help another one, another person, um, will not only come into this industry and enjoy it, you know, you want them to, you want them to, we want to bolster the UK offering in terms of the, uh, skills that we've, that we've got and, um, bringing people on and mentoring them. It's, such a valuable thing so this last year we've managed to take on two apprentices we've got uh, Eustace in our laboratory who's our lab technician and uh, Dana uh, who's our sort of quality and process engineer and we've put them on like a five-year apprenticeship working with our technical director and trying to really capture their interest in refractories because you know a lot of countries like China and India you know they're doing a lot in that in those sectors and the UK that market's dwindled somewhat so we need to put extra effort into uh, retaining these skills and keeping it here. Absolutely and maybe you can tell us a little bit then about the context uh, of your sector what's it like how's it modernized over the years is it forward-looking or you know you, you sort of hinted earlier that maybe it was a bit of an established stuck in its stuck in its ways i mean people like you shaking it up and and maybe others what's the what's the situation now it's it's i i found it particularly difficult in terms of trying to modernize the business so i think other industries there's um if we look at civil concrete for example you know civil concrete is um not dissimilar in process to what we do but there's a lot of robots and and uh, different different equipment that's available for that industry that's readily available and people to help and support it but refractories although it's a similar process you can't just sort of pick it up and put it into refractories and everything everything works because the industry's dwindled and it was quite an old established industry there's been less investment put into refractories in the UK I think as a result because there's been this sort of uh, fight for survival. Um, I think from the late 80s in the Rotherham and Sheffield area, there was 300 different refractory companies. And I think now there's about four. Right. So, you know, to have survived through that, it's almost like a race to the bottom. But in that race, people haven't then put back into the companies and made and modernized the processes. So now, you know, it needs to, we need to sort of jump 30 years really and just and not try and go through the the stages that perhaps other companies have gone through we just need to make that uh jump to today and um, that sounds very tricky yes it is and you can imagine so we're sort of having to go back to basics to then understand all the basics to then be able to make the jump and that's it's been quite time consuming doing that but we've uh we've got some new plant on order that's part of this um journey and hopefully that should be going in in the next couple of months so uh, that's the first step um, in terms of the factory of making that uh, more efficient and then trying to get the flow of everything correct as well so lots to do still lots to do so you're you're looking forward uh, and I wondered um, what you think would be a good way for the industry to change to allow better access to women it's, you've obviously brought some women on there as apprentices um and not just women but other groups who've traditionally felt like outsiders how can we change industry to kind of open it up for different types of people 
I think we need to create some excitement about it. And um, so it's not even just about changing the the stigma. We've actually got to um, make it exciting. Uh, I think actually not just not just better access for women, but actually encouraging more people into um, manufacturing as a whole, not just manuf- not manufacturing cool things like nuclear or aerospace and the yeah. things that everybody, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm in aerospace. Great. Wow. But actually there's a whole, there's a whole, which is wow. But at the same time, there's a whole other world of manufacturing behind all of that that those industries rely upon that are equally important because they're all part of the cog. And, um, you know, we've got to get people excited about it. And I think that was the interesting thing for myself because when I was the 16-year-old version of myself, when my dad was trying to tell me, you know, oh, look, this this is a uh, this is a tundish lid and this thing, they, uh, you know, the flow of steel goes through this and isn't it amazing? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating dad you know (laughs) but I wasn't interested I wish now it was my biggest regret because the the chemistry behind it all the way things interact in the process um it's absolutely fascinating and you can change so much about the process if you use the right product so it's how you get people excited about that and how women or men you know, can can also get excited about what we do that would give them job satisfaction. And it's changing the traditional roles of what we're conditioned to going into career-wise. And I think schools have got to be the way to do this. So, I mean, in a, a few weeks' time, my daughter's primary school, they want me to do a presentation on on what I do. And, you know, like not bringing mum to school day, but, um, you know, it's how I've, I've sat and thought about, well, how do I get a group of seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds to be excited about what what we do. And it, it's very tricky, but at the same time, you know, if you look at a steel furnace, if you, if you ever get, to, if anybody ever gets to Google uh, the melting, electric arc furnace melting of steel, uh, watch a video of that because it's like a volcano erupting on screen. It's absolutely incredible, the sounds and the smells and the... Um, the noise that that creates and to be stood next to it in your fireproofs and you can feel the heat coming off the furnace and you, you, you're sort of 50 yards away from it. It's absolutely incredible. And then you really understand how important what we do is because between that molten steel and me and my fire suit is a layer of refractory. And if it's not doing its job properly, there's People aren't people aren't going to be able to do their jobs because they'll have been melted essentially, <laughs> and um, it's very very important. So uh, yeah, it's just how we capture them. I think if you tell the story like that, I, I'm excited by it. It sounds spectacular and uh, and it, you know dangerous and, and exciting all at once. I'm sure the kids will love it as well. And you were telling me before that um, there's also an artistic tribute of you on the bonnet of a Porsche, thanks to uh, your daughter at school. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So. Uh, as a as a side thing, they were given a um, a challenge uh, through through Porsche to um, to create some artwork on a on a Taycan and promote uh, diversity uh, and also sort of women in engineering. So uh, her and a group of uh, other year elevens, twelves, and thirteens at the school um, had to design different elements and then 
collaborated together to create this uh, to create this car. And we went to the sort of the grand unveiling of the uh, of the vehicle. And uh, there's like images, different images on there. And uh, there's, she's somehow she wanted to depict me, which is really nice. So there's uh, you can't tell it's me, though, but that was her inspiration um, as sort of a woman in engineering and in a in a non-traditional role. So it's sort of me in my my fire suit as a cartoon uh, on the front. So uh, it, it was very well received and there was a lot of pizza and wine that evening as well. So it was <laughs> definitely worth going to. Oh, lovely. Um, and then finally, just to, just to pull back and, and look generally uh, at your part of the industry, it's been a difficult few years, not just COVID and Brexit, but also British Steel going into liquidation in 2019. So what do you expect over the next few years and what can be done to keep things on track? Well, I think it would be wrong to expect a, uh, a smooth ride because if anything I've learned about this industry is it's certainly not a smooth ride it seems to be a rolling cycle that one of our steelworks is in in liquidation at least once every three years. But hopefully, maybe with Brexit, we are able to support our essential industries a little bit better than we have in the past. It's looking that way anyway, because I believe the government recognise how important those industries are for us to be self-sustaining. I mean, British Steel, for example, makes the best rail in the world and we make the best rail in the world in the UK and we should be proud of that and that should not be allowed to go anywhere else because we are known for it and uh, we should be proud of it and protect that just as forge masters they uh, they do a lot in the sort of the nuclear side of things well that's part of our national security and um, and they've been given assistance to uh, to make sure that we don't lose that. And I think if we can do a little bit more than that, just as other countries do to their own steel industry, and um, then then maybe that will help companies like us who support those industries retain their footing and and our knowledge and expertise. Because I think if we don't have that mass, that volume of industry, we're just going to lose all of our skills. And and then what do we have? It's can't just be all on service so um yeah plenty to do plenty to do well we'll end the show the same way we do every week by uh me asking uh, the guests to tell us the one invention that if it was never manufactured your life would be unbearable so katie what could you not live without it's uh it's one of those where it sounds probably worse than it is and it has been invented but then they've uninvented it so oh, it's right. uh it has to be my spray foundation because it means I can put my um, (laughs) makeup on in about 10 seconds in the morning and uh, juggle everything else but um, I'm not sure whether it's a Brexit issue actually but they've they've stopped uh, they've stopped making it and uh, or not a Brexit issue an EU issue but they've they've stopped making it and it's really really unbearable at the moment so I'm having to get it from America (laughs) and I'm hoping they're going to bring it back but um, yes it's uh, that sounds terribly uh, Instagram, doesn't answer. it? But yeah, it, it's it, awful. It, it's a good answer. Putting a bit of glamour back into industry. So glam, we've never yes. had that one before. Yeah. Um, well, all it leaves me to do is say thanks to today's guest, Katie Moss. No, thank you very much for having me. Great chat. So subscribe to this podcast in all the usual places Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and Google Music. Thanks for listening to this edition of Remake Manufacturing. I'm your host, Stuart Black. See you next time. Mm-hmm.